I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Tom Bland. Tom Bland studied psychotherapy and dream analysis at the Society for Psychology and Healing, as well as contemporary performance practices and live art at the University of East London. He teaches online writing courses and edits the magazine Spontaneous Poetics. His book, The Death of a Clown, is out with Bad Betty Press, and his next book, Camp Fear, will be available in 2021. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious psychoanalytic perspectives, politics, and poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n, dot com forward slash v a n e s s a two three c a r l your support is greatly appreciated for more information you can visit my website dr vanessa sinclair dot net or the podcast website rendering unconscious dot org So I'll just start with uh, this poem. Amy was a clown, describing herself as an acid maverick, pioneering the eye in the triangle she wore around her neck, falling onto the bright green T-shirt. Clowning's a coat, she said, opening an empty envelope sitting between her almost finished espresso and her latex red nose. Some people think the clown is a performance I put on and take off, but no, I must be the clown at all times. I can't stand slipping back into that thing, she said, human. I met Amy on a three-week clown retreat in the cider-brewing region of Hertfordshire, surrounded by trees and red noses, crisscrossing between technical mime exercises and the spontaneous scream from the bowels upward. Don't be afraid to scream, Tom. She said, I said to myself, she reminded me too much of myself. That made me scream, seeing myself as a blonde-haired woman with a perfect pear-shaped figure, standing in front of me, wearing her red nose, laughing, poking me, hitting me with a rubber machete, telling me to wake up. She, an acidic Osho in a polka dot outfit, screaming, the golden reality will dawn a new motherfucker. There was a clown. He was also a serial killer. But he never killed as a clown. When he scrubbed away the makeup, bits of his stubble came out. His teeth gripped, trying to hold in the impulse to kill. He stared at himself in the mirror, at the face he was born with. In his red book, he wrote, Sadness, that feeling in me terrifies me, only stripping it away in the bodies of others. 
the cute young men in Converse, trainers, makes the void something I can step into again. I, I imagine being killed by him. Amy took on his robe, slicing away the sadness in me until my face shone so wide she could see my teeth in the sunshine, awkwardly appearing between the beech trees, squirting ketchup on me to make it all seem real. We decided to swap clothes to be each other at dinner in front of all the other clowns. She ate steak and I ate potatoes and both of us had onion sauce and silver plates. And some clowns thought we had been fucking, but I shouted, she was killing me for my own good. The next day she looked at me and said, darling, don't you want to kill me? Straight out of nowhere, I slammed a rubber machete into her heart, whispering in her ear, I too dream of love, but we both just laughed. Uh, so that's from this little book um, here, <laughs> published by uh, Bad Betty Press, uh, run by the amazing Amy Aker and Jack Wildhall. Uh, so I've done my little blog uh, plug for their, their, their amazing press. Uh, How did this, this book come about? Um, so it came out in 2018 and it was written, uh, half of it was written before and half of it was written during um, an MA I did in contemporary performance practice uh, that was run by a group called ZUK, who specialise in kind of immersive theatre, particularly with a political edge. Um, and I, I didn't know that much about immersive theatre. So I just kind of went to the interview for the MA. The friend of mine told me to go. She was like, Tom, just go to the interview. Uh, she had worked with these guys. Uh, and then I just started talking to them about Art Toe and about Ritual. And, and they were like, oh, yeah, come and do us at our MA. This is exactly the kind of stuff we're into. Um, so some of it was kind of written for uh, performances that happened for the MA, and then some of it was written beforehand. Um, I originally, many, many years ago now, trained as a clown uh, in a French school called Nose to Nose, uh, which is very much based on Winnicottian psychoanalysis. Uh, so... There's a lot of kind of work around finding the authentic or true self and, and kind of the clown has been that transition between the false and the true. Uh, so that was kind of one of the introductions I had into psychoanalysis as well. Oh, you have to talk more about that. What was that school like? Uh, um, so most of it was in the UK and some of it was in France uh, and the training lasted for about two years and it was a, with a very small group of people so there was 12 of us and there was always two uh, uh, at least two tutors um, and um, I had originally done storytelling at the same college uh, so I was kind of immersed in a world of mythology and fairy tales and then I jumped into the clown because I was particularly interested in the trickster archetype. You know, this idea that illusion could somehow produce a kind of truth. 
Um, so that that was the kind of real archetype I wanted to work with, and the closest I could find to that is um, was uh, clowning. Um, and this idea of the clown as the intermediary between the false and the true self in the Wiener-Cotian sense uh, really kind of spoke to me in quite a unique way. Um, and Vivian, the, the founder of the school, uh, didn't do any theory with us. But I remember we were just sitting over coffee and he said, Tom, you might want to read Winnicott. I went, oh, okay, I'll just note that down. And then I started reading Winnicott. Uh, and then clowning ended up leading me to train in psychotherapy uh, a few years after I'd finished my clown training. Yeah. So and then <laughs> back into immersive theater. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I kind of dovetailed around back into theater. Uh, because then what I became very interested in when doing psychotherapy was ritual. Uh, and I studied um, at a school called the Society for Psychology and Healing. And the school, uh, the overall kind of synthesis of the psychodynamic principles was a Jungian one. Uh, so dream work was the core kind of curriculum throughout the five-year course. Uh, and then we branched off into... Uh, into quite traditional British psychoanalysis. So Freud to begin with, uh, then we did uh, Melanie Klein, and then we did Winnicott, uh, and then we did Jung as the kind of overall framework. And then throughout the course, Dreams was the kind of the core principle that connected all these different approaches together, uh, which definitely kind of influenced my writing. Uh, I'm very much taken by this kind of Allen Ginsberg idea of the poem as this kind of thing spoken to oneself in, in the middle of the night between the kind of limbo of waking and dreaming. Uh, and then I started to kind of get interested into how that might relate to rituals and how that might be materialized through the body. Uh, which then kind of brought me to Wilhelm Reich and those kind of thinkers as well. Nice. So how did you get into psychoanalysis and psychotherapeutic training from clown school? <laughs> well, before, before I went to clown school, I used to work for a psychologist uh, called Petruska Clarkson. I don't think she's that well known outside of the UK, but she was basically the kind of founder of the UK's approach to kind of integrative psychology and psychotherapy. Um, she studied the four major um, approaches, three if you discount transpersonal. Is transpersonal on the humanistic spectrum or is it its own school? You know, I, I don't know. I'm not going to get into that kind of conversation. Um, but, you know, she trained in the the three or four major modularities of psychotherapy. And then what she kind of discovered uh, was that what connected these four things together? And she considered it to be the relationship. Uh, so she wrote, you know, her kind of magna zombus as a book with the therapeutic relationship, um, where she outlines 
the different kinds of relationships that happen in the psychotherapeutic spectrum, regardless of what school one practices from. Uh, so this was her kind of central idea. Um, and then I met someone called Tessa Adams, who's a Jungian analyst, or was a Jungian analyst. Um, and then after I came back to the UK through clown school, uh, I met her quite randomly in a bookshop. And she said, oh, I've just joined um, the Society for Psychology and Healing. Um, you should come and check out what we're doing. I went, oh, cool. So I went to one of the kind of open evenings, and then I met Beverly as well, who started the school. And they, they started telling me about dream work and about psychotherapy and Jung. I said, oh, my God, I've got to get in on this. Uh, so I ended up doing a five-year training on that basis. <laughs> That's amazing. And how did you find the training? What was it like? Uh, very, very intense. Uh, so... Um, uh, it was kind of, it was technically a part-time training. Uh, although, you know, in regards to how many hours we did, it was actually kind of a full-time training. Uh, and then we saw clients. Uh, and I worked um, with the clients. I worked in a place called The Studio Upstairs, which is located in Dawson in London. Uh, and it's a kind of art um, Therapeutic uh, Institute, uh, which is kind of really amazing place actually, based on RD Lang. Uh, so I would do kind of group work with people as well as individual work, um, using kind of theatre techniques and art techniques and kind of writing techniques and performance elements as well. Uh, so, you know, it was quite a kind of integrative training in that sense. Yeah, that sounds really interesting, though. And, like, you get to use a lot of different modalities. Yeah, I, I started off, I did, I, I also did a year of humanistic training as well. Uh, so, you know, I kind of came through the humanistic route uh, to the psychodynamic and, and to the kind of Jungian uh, approach. And I think, I think, you know, I've got to say, I, I am pretty much a kind of, psychodynamic thinker these days um and i'm not, my my focus was always young to begin with but i do now love young uh, i do now love freud and klein as well maybe a little bit more than young um, these days yeah i find i really love Jung's writing and his ideas but i don't find that i use it much in the clinic like i don't really use it with patients or analysis but I like to read it just because he's like a great theorist or I don't know he writes everything like mythology is is that do, do, do you notice universal archetypes in your clients dreams and stuff or is that not a thing I think I don't look for it I think the reason why I don't use it is because I'm really um, into not putting any ideas that I have at all onto the person. So I'm not really looking for any, like, what anything like that might have specific meaning as far as symbols or archetypes or any sort of universals. I'm more just constantly asking them what they think about these kinds of images and their dream work and that sort of mm. thing. So I take a really, like, 
uh, focus on the individual perspective and and not I don't interpret much at all. I just continue to ask them questions so that they can keep like picking through and finding out their own interpretations. Hillman says this amazing thing. Um, I kind of forget where he says it. I think it might be revision in psychology. Um, And he says, you know, Jungians always interpret uh, the serpent as this kind of mega phallic symbol of the universe erupting out of itself. And and, and Hillman goes, but actually, it's the serpent we have to deal with, not the universal phallus. <laughs> um, and I, I, really, I really like that idea that, uh, you know, when like a client or, or even myself, if I dream of a serpent, you know, it's the serpent I have to speak to, not, not the kind of the, the backdrop that one imagines might be there. Yeah, I use a lot of Hillman in my cut-ups. Every time I find a book of his, I cut it up because, I don't know, his words make really good cut-up fodder. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, is, he is perfect at the one sentence. You know, he does have the most perfect one sentences I've ever seen. Yeah, um, they're really good. Klein, too, of course. <laughs> so, so, you, so, so do you cut up the whole book or just, like, fragments of it? Or well, I end up... I end up keeping it. I usually read it and then I start cutting it up page by page. But I have like a whole bookshelf full of like books that are partially cut up. Mm. I've never done cut ups. It's one of the things I've I've been kind of wanting to do. Um, but it's having a kind of weird resurgence at the moment. There's a number of people I know who who are kind of doing it. Um, both for de- divination purposes and for writing purposes. Have, have you found, like, like Barbers was obsessed with it as a kind of divination method. Is this something you found as well? Have you been able to tell the future with, with it? Well, I don't know if it's the future, but kind of say the darndest things, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> and you could read it, some people could read it as, like, something futuristic or something that's like has a message from some other place or you could just see it as like kind of cutting through your programming to like have a peek at your unconscious you know you could look at it either Mm. way like my friend Jason Hoff who was in the previous episode um he started doing cut up cut ups of his own writing and um putting it with photographs of his ancestors that he never met and he felt like Mm. the there was a communication happening, like the ancestors were trying to say something to him through his own words, cut up. Well, that's a really interesting thing to do. I'm going to to explore a little bit more, I think. Now you have to do it. Yeah, I do. I do. I've I've tried it. They've all kind of, all my, like, did I try to do it for kind of publication sort of, and none, none of them has ever kind of crystallized enough for that kind of thing. But I've always, I've enjoyed experimenting with it so far and the kind of random kind of elements that one, one that kind of burst through. Yeah, one of the things that Burroughs said, which I really loved, was that like his favorite poet was Rimbaud. 
And uh, if you like love Artaud, you just take someone that you love their writing and you might've read everything they've written or a hundred times, yeah. but if you cut up their own writing, then it's still them speaking, but in a new way. Arto would be amazing to do it with, I think, because it's so it's so kind of chaotic. Is is umbers that it actually might make sense out of it? I actually kind of suddenly become crystal clear. Um, I'm yeah, sure I, it would be amazing, and then you can try cutting up Arto with your own writing, and you two can have a dialogue. <laughs> I'd, I'd be very interested to see what would come out. My writing combined with Arto's writing. Um, that, would, that would be quite an interesting thing, I think. Um, Arto has been a kind of figure that kind of existed for me for years. Although the only thing I read for years was theatre and its double. Um, and I always thought like the play guesser was kind of amazing, but I didn't, I didn't really, I wasn't really interested in theatre at this point when I first read it. I think I was like, 15 or something so all the other like the, the the essays about dancing and all that sort of thing I I kind of paid no relevance to it um although I think as I ended up well joining clown school and uh uh um you know d- doing immersive theatre and storytelling that Arto had secretly been working on me through those years you know, somehow directing me towards theatre uh, when I had no kind of ambition to be in the theatre or work in a sort of performance-based practice. Uh, yeah, so I, I do, I do, I do see Arto as a kind of influence that's moved me throughout, through, 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 throughout the kind of years in a kind of unconscious way. Yeah, Arto's incredible and very uh, potent. I'm sure that he would come through very strongly if you cut him up. Yeah, I'm definitely going to try. I'm going to throw a copy of some of his books. You have to let me know what happens when you come at the other end of this rabbit hole because you can end up in a (laughs) cut-up rabbit hole for like, I don't know, I ended up in one for like five years. (laughs) 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 So I finally wrote a book about it and I'm like, all right. <laughs> yeah, you've you've got loads of. In, uh, I, I keep on posting artists on my Twitter, and you keep on saying, "Oh, I've got this guy in my book, or I've got this person." So, so like, um, let, 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 let's have a chat about some of our favorite artists. Then. Yeah, like um, Monet. I was just about to mention him. He's one of my heroes. He's one of my idols. Uh, although I know very little about him in terms of his actual life. Uh, was this something you, you kind of had to research or? Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, he was pretty solitary. I mean, the, I mean, he grew up with like, his parents were also creative in that like his mother was a seamstress uh, and his father was like a house painter. Um, and he was a painter for a long time, like for like houses and construction and making like marble, things look like marble when they weren't and that kind of faux finishing. Um, but yeah, you could see that he got his mother's like seamstress skills as well. Um, and I just love him because he was so like on his own and he just created this whole world of his own. Um, mm. and he just lived in it and had clearly the best time, um, 
And then, of course, you had, you know, some people like models and stuff that would be with him here and there, um, like Hannah Koch and um, a couple others. But yeah, I think what I love so much, I mean, of course, besides the aesthetics of his work and his working with identity and gender and his body and the mirror and the double and mannequins and I mean, all of that's incredible. Um, but I love the most that he just created this whole world that he just like, he yeah. just was like, I'm just doing my own thing. He didn't care about showing. Um, he had like one one show in his lifetime that Breton put on um, and that was it. He was just like, he was just in it. And that to me, that's true art. You know, he was just doing his thing. And I wish more artists were just doing that and not worrying about, accolades or selling it or who's seeing it or just doing it because they're compelled to. I love compulsive art. A, a friend of mine's a, a photographer and um, I didn't know she was into Molinaire. Uh, and then then I think she mentioned it. She wrote, she's a poet as well. Um, and she wrote a piece on one of his photographs. And I was like, oh, no, it'd be interesting to kind of recreate this. And she said, no, the technical skill it would take to kind of recreate his photographs is just kind of enormous. And I was like, oh, so it's that. And she was like, the detail of his work is just incredible. Um, and it's, it's weird. I, I came, I, I did a workshop uh, with a live artist uh, years ago now as well. Uh, and then I met one of the participants in London and I had nothing to do that day. Uh, it was like random. I think it was just, I was reading a book in a pub or something and he popped over and said, hello. And I said, oh, uh, you want to have a drink? He said, no, I've got to go to an exhibition. And you want to come? And it was like Molinaire's exhibition in London. Uh, so that's kind of where I saw the artwork. Uh, and I've still got the kind of two-page catalogue they did for it. Um, and I was just com completely enthralled and I just started trying to, you know, I ended up buying a book on uh, Molinaire uh, that Creation Books did uh, years ago and just sort of collecting his images. Um, I think that's the only kind of full exhibition they've had in London of his work. The South Bank had a few for their gender exhibition a year or so back. But, you know, they had like 30, 40 images of Bollinaire and I'm, I was just entranced. I've never been like so entranced by artwork in that way before. Yeah, uh, I never love this, you know, like like you, it's kind of like this, this whole unique universe he envisioned and realised in some sort of way, you know, and how the artwork became its own ritual as well is, is a kind of element I love. Yeah, and apparently he had mirrors all over his house, like above his bed and like his walls and just everything was like covered with <laughs> mirrors um, that he took these photographs in. And and um, yeah, just all of, and his like doubling and like quadrupling images and like making these fantastic patterns. And, and he also developed ways to... Um, cut out pieces like cut out himself and other creations and then like just use just mount them so that he could reuse them over and over again instead of actually like pasting them down um, and then he would just photograph like these assemblages that he would make of his own photographs that he had made that he had altered um yeah mm -hmm. no he's 
he's a true master for sure. I've only Good. seen his work in person as at Invisible Exports in New York. They had a gallery with Jen. It was, it was like Briar Peorge and Pierre Molinier and the, they, they had a show together. Um, that's the only time I think I've seen his work in person. Oh, I've seen, I've seen, there's a YouTube film of the the gallery exhibition with Polinaire and uh, Genesis Peorich. Obviously, I wasn't, I didn't see it in person, but it, it looked fantastic. Yeah, it was a, it was a nice show. So I, I, I saw Genesis Peorich's last show in London uh, at Heaven uh, a few years back. Uh so he's someone I found out about modern in the book Modern Primitives years ago. Uh, also, when like when I was fifteen, I was really cool. I was like Modern Primitives and Apocalypse Culture. You know, I had no ambition whatsoever. All, all I did was read books and get stoned. <laughs> when I was fifteen, I used to like find the weirdest sort of books. So I had like creation books, and I was reading like. Jeremy Reed's work, who is another kind of his kind of ethos of poetry, really kind of um, influenced me. So he thought poetics, or he thinks uh, that poetics and extreme psychology needs to com- combine together. Now I'm not quite sure how to realise that, but I love that idea. Um, so yeah, so like. You know, and, and there's all these little kind of, I look back at what I was reading now, and I go, well, you know, it's not, it's not surprising that I, I, I ended up, you know, going into live art, writing poetry, um, and, and doing kind of extreme psychology in terms of kind of using elements of ritual and, and analysis and dream work and combining them together. Yeah, the seeds were planted long ago. Could see the seeds long I ago. <laughs> I think that's true for a lot of people, especially if people would get rid of this idea of like having to grow out of things when they get older. Because I feel like most people I know that feel like they're really like in tune with themselves that have been like sort of similar since adolescence. It's not something they had to like get out of to become like an adult, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, yeah, I think if you just encourage adolescents to, like, go with what they think is driving them or what they're passionate about, then they can skip that whole, like, normalization process that uh, gets, everybody gets put through. I think, I think it's kind of the socialization of a person that somehow, you know, that everyone has to fit together in a kind of collective and the only way to do that is have a mundane relation between people. So then every, every thought that doesn't fit into that collective somehow becomes censored or, or, or repressed or, 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 or just isn't given enough time to grow to begin with. So then we get a kind of normalization of people. And I think, I think Freud is right that there's a kind of discontent to that experience. But the discontent isn't enough to kind of make people jump out of that normalization. Uh, so I think, I think Freud was on the money there, really. But then, 
there's those people who are somewhat isolated or, or the people who move places as well. It's interesting, a lot of, uh, a lot of people will, like in their early childhood will move locations and they tend not to have that kind of rigid, rigid kind of thinking because they've had to learn a whole new culture, you know, kind of overnight. So it's, it's very interesting kind of like how do people keep flexible in their thinking? You know, the law, a lot of issues uh, is either, you know, people's thoughts uh, kind of jump into themselves. So, um, you know, you, you see on Twitter that people just kind of say the same things over and over again as a kind of mantra, you know. And the question has to be, what, what is that preventing from happening? You know, what, why is that mechanism happening inside their heads? And what would happen if you just switch it? You know, and what, what then is the fear of switching that thought? You know, and I, I look at kind of political debate at the moment, and there's just this, this repetition, this endless repetition of one person shouting one thing and another person shouting another thing. And there's no kind of space in between which can open into a dialogue. And I wonder, I wonder what would happen if you just switched that, that, the repetition off to see what would happen. You know, would it erupt into a huge war or would a dialogue start to happen or would it kind of just depend on the individual? You know, and I think, I think it's really kind of interesting. You know, and I think, I think this is kind of brings us back to Allen Ginsberg with, you know, poetry is not the party line. You know, it's your most private thoughts that have been shared in verse or in prose. Have you seen this film? This is also in my book. Um, but the film, um, <laughs> Me and My Brother, that's about Peter Olowski and uh, his brother Julius uh, and... It's Alan Ginsberg and Peter. Um, have you seen this? It's by Robert no. Frank. Oh my God, you have to watch this film. It's by Robert Frank. And he basically follows uh, Peter Olowski and Alan Ginsberg around when they're doing like a beat poetry tour of like the Midwest, like Kansas or Kentucky or something like this. And he's filming it. And it's like partially uh, like documentary, like real footage of them. And Peter's... Um, brother Julius had just been out of a mental institution that he'd been locked up for like 13 years and that's like true and then they Peter's wanting him to like see the world and the, you know it's like the 60s and the world of late 50s and you know wanting to take him around and like let his brother have experiences of the world which is like amazing but also a bit overwhelming I think for all of them and um yeah and so Robert Frank also this is this amazing part where it's like part of it isn't documentary and it's like 
he gets actors to like play them as characters. And then sometimes like their voices will come out of the other person's mouth. So he starts playing with all this like switching of identities and like, are we watching a documentary or is this a story? Is it fiction? I can't tell. And um, yeah, it's just an amazing like commentary on so many different levels of like, you know, LGBT rights and political culture of the time and uh, the problems with the way people were treating people with regards to mental health and mental illness and like um, people being able to give consent. And it's just, it's just amazing. It's amazing. You have to see it. Me and my brother. <laughs> uh, that's definitely going on my list of films to watch. Uh, one, 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 one of the films I've been thinking about recently, particularly in regards to art house, the film Addiction. Have you seen it with Christopher Walken and Lily Taylor? Mm-mm. And it's about the, the guy who wrote it, Nicholas, uh, oh, I've just forgotten his second name, Nicholas Saint, something or another. His son had just died in real life, and he wrote these two scripts, more or less one after the other. One is called The Funeral, and one is called The Addiction. And The Addiction is about a trauma that can't be identified. So you, you have this kind of play out of the vampire myth. It's, it's so unreal, the vampiric elements of the film that it ultimately sort of becomes false. And you go, oh, well, what was the point of the vampiric element of this film? Because everything else is so kind of real and so kind of guttural that you go, oh, well, what's the point of this? And, and it is to kind of show the fantasy of the unnameable. And, you, you know... You, autobiographically we can link it back to the writer's son but you know if you didn't know that there is just this kind of weird little abyss in the film that is never spoken about that is somehow related to intensity and to addiction and to the drive to kind of feel to know something uh, which is then sort of hidden inside the mythology of the vampire um, and I think I think I think this is a really sort of interesting sort of idea, particularly for writers. This kind of the fictions that come out of what can't kind of be pinpointed, or kind of for the want of a better term, nailed down. You know what what is that driving kind of pathology for the want of a better term that makes someone create something. You know, and people might object to the idea of pathology as the root of creativity. But I would, I would sort of go to the idea of being, uh, you know, I'm not a particularly big Heidinger fan, but the idea of being thrown into the world, into a world that has its own structures and its own shapes and its own way of, of impinging upon you as an individual in the world, you know, is its own kind of traumatic experience, you know, because all, all I think, no, I don't want to be too broad, but I would say at least in terms of my work and those writers and artists I'm inspired by, there is this kind of 
alien relationship to the world, that somehow the connection between oneself and the outer world isn't quite, is somehow not quite coherent, isn't, isn't quite, is somehow fractured or isn't quite connected together in the way that for most people it is. So then the imagination starts to fill in that gap. Uh, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, and I think that people are doing that all the time anyway. It's just more, some people have more, I guess, access to it or maybe are more aware of it or are differently creative with it rather than just adhering to the norms that are kind of presented to them. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, obviously Freud talked about that as kind of transference and counter-transference, which then, you know, that's a minicule kind of aspect of the larger relationship to the rest of the world and to the people inside the world. And now with the internet, you know, and with Twitter and Facebook and, and that weird, like, outright group that, that Katie Holmes went to, I don't know what it is, uh, but I just heard about it on, on Twitter. The whole idea of transference and counter-transference is now this kind of electric kind of, you know, the electricity of the internet now embodies transference and counter-transference, which I think, I think is fascinating. It's a kind of fascinating idea, you know. How, how does... How does one perceptions and distortions of perceptions shape the way we think about uh, the language we see on on a screen and how we respond to that? And I think I, I think that's yeah. What, what were you going to say? I think that's really spot on, and I think that um, the internet and social media and everyone interacting in the online realm has really made all these kind of psychoanalytic ideas that people have been talking about for the past century, like really like obvious. It's like obvious and at play and in our faces, I feel like in a way that it's never been before, you know, and you can really see all these kinds of dynamics uh, playing out in real time. And I think also like the younger generation is more aware of these things in a lot of ways than other people have been because of this constant interacting with the screen. It's like a constant mirroring and, and, and this whole idea that like everyone's their own brand. It's like this idea of like being a performance or like putting on this mask or this character or this clown, right? Or I don't know if you got to go to Jordan Osterman's talk over the weekend that he hosted the Foy Museum, um, but he read about, uh, he read from Joan Riviere's piece uh, where she talks about femininity as a masquerade. And so they, they were talking all weekend as kind of identity as a masquerade of performance in any way that it's portrayed. But I think all these ideas are really like palpable and kind of um, clear in a way that they haven't been before because of the constant use of the internet. There's, there's the question of how much do you really see a person? And I think, I think you know, Psychotherapy is really built on that premise. Oh, that, that's my roundabout outside. I, I live next to a roundabout. Uh, it's basically, I've never seen a crash there, but I'm, I'm more amazed that I haven't seen a crash there than, than, than the cars actually managed to go, 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 go around. Um, 
the, the, I think, I think that there is this question about, you know, and it's a question at the heart of theatre as well, you know, how well do you actually see another person? And how capable is a person of seeing another person? You know, and, and I, I guess humanistic psychology would suggest that there is a route to seeing that. And, and uh, Carl Rogers tried to pin it down to quite simple uh, principles. And a lot of them I kind of agree with in a practical sense. You know, of of you know when you you sit with a client or, or with a group uh, uh, in in a teaching situation to kind of abandon ideas of what you think the person might be telling you and such like. I think I think that makes sense, but does that really enable you to see another person? And I I would say no, actually. I would say actually you're probably closer to it. But it also depends on how much a person is willing to reveal, you know. And the question with the internet then becomes, are people more willing to reveal or less willing to reveal? And I, I think there is an argument to be made that people are willing to reveal different things on the internet than they might do in a personal situation. But the things they probably would reveal in a personal situation, they wouldn't reveal online. And I think the dynamic then completely shifts. And that's how the debate shifts as well, you know, in terms of political conversation or in terms of an exchange of ideas. You know, because they're... Because it depends on different things, like people use pseudonyms online. You know, how much of a real person are you actually seeing? Are you seeing their name? Are you seeing an actual portrait of themselves as their profile? You know, but then the voice is still their voice. But then even though they've fictitiously created themselves, let's propose... You know, their profile pic is, is, is a fake. Their name is a fake. There's no identifying details you could locate about that individual. They're still the one sitting there typing. And they chose those things. Yeah. So they all, they all, so what, what then is being revealed? You know, there must be a slice of authenticity in all those things. You know, but, you know, as Jung says, one can create a monster out of oneself. You know, a monster in the sense of these being foreign elements, you know, foreign, foreign, a foreign picture, a foreign name, you know, and, and, and views which they may or may not hold. You know, it's a kind of monstrosity that they're presenting in the world. But then how much does that present of their their inner life, you know, where, which little element of themselves does this come out of? Is it the id? Is it the superego? You know, is it a recreation of an ego? You know, and these are all kind of, kind of questions I think one, one has to deal with. You know? 
Absolutely. No, I love that. That was really well put. And I think it, I think the other thing that we see so clearly is like the projection and how much people are projecting onto other people. And especially uh, my biggest pet peeve, which I think we can see really clearly in politics now, is like people hating something or disowning something about themselves and then projecting it onto other people and mm. then like going after other people, like attacking other people. Um, like, I mean, I just... I won't name names, but like basically anyone who's going after like LGBTQ people, it's like, you have to get right with your sexuality, man. <laughs> like You can't be mad that you're not in tune with your own sexuality and then just attacking everybody out there uh, who is living their best life, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this this is it's a kind of denial of fun as well. There's this weird denial of fun on the internet. This idea that people could just be free to wear a dress and go outside. Yeah, know. what's the problem? <laughs> and why? And why would anybody else care? This is this is it's like. I mean, I know it's like apparently rocks their whole foundation of what they think society should be, but like then they need to grow up. <laughs> Is, is, is this deep fear of autonomy that somehow a person has a choice in their own lives? You know, I, I basically I see that as the kind of the, the root of the, the fear is that if someone can make a, a choice that is so, in their mind, so profoundly alternative to everything they learn, what would then start to happen if they too started to think in that way? You know, and then the uncertainty of that is what then caused the defense to, 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 to jump up in front of them. It's like a wall that just kind of goes up straight in front of them. And they have to disown the idea that they too could start thinking outside of what they themselves know. And then, you know, you know, and then, you know, in, in, in my mind, that's like the best place to be. But for other people, that, that's the, the most fearful place one can be. I think, I think that's one of the good things about art schools and stuff like that, is that they cultivate that kind of element of thinking. You know, and I, I, think, I think that's why, you know, I don't, want, I don't want to say everyone should go to art school. I think that would be ridiculous. But, you know, I, I would like to see that element of thinking somehow put into education. Uh, you know, um, the, the, the storytelling and the clowning was at Rudolf Steiner uh, Adult College. Um, and though I, I don't have that much relation to Steiner, in terms of the techniques we learn and the, the imaginative engagement they asked us to make to the world. You know, there's one exercise where we just sat outside, uh, there was on top of a hill uh, in, in a place called Forest Row, which is literally just countryside. It's just like as far as you can see, it's countryside. And we had this exercise where we just wrote, I am. And then you just looked at something and described exactly what that was. 
so, and we, we did it for about half an hour. So we ended up with this huge sheet of paper with the I am, you know, a tiny butterfly in a blonde lock of hair, you know, and we did this and we, and somehow the consciousness of ourselves seemed to expand across the landscape we were in. So then in some metaphorical sense, we became every small detail of the, of the world we were located in. You know, and I think, I think exercises like this, you know, really could profit, uh, you know, the current conversation that the world is having amongst itself. You know, this idea that who we are is not only located inside us, but it's located on the outside as well. You know, Hillman's, Hillman's, Anima Mundi, the soul of the world is the soul you exist in. So um, this is my book. Uh, so um, uh, it's been well reviewed. So I, 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 you know, fancy having a read of it. That's great. Uh, go to the Bad Betty website. Um, well, I'm, I've technically finished uh, my next book, which is called Camp Fear. Uh, it's going to go through an editorial process with Amy Akers, an amazing editor. Uh, and then it'll be published uh, in 2021, next year. Uh, I believe it's coming out in October, but that's not been confirmed yet. Yeah. And what's that about? Oh, um, so it's um, a verse novel. So it's about a trainee psychotherapist uh, who does drag on the side. Um, there's a Gnostic evangelicist uh, who takes over the airwaves. Uh, who's obsessed with an androgynous Christ. Uh, there's a memoirist, <laughs> uh, an erotic memoirist, uh, who turns into a TV journalist uh, and has a Channel 4 show called Fuck Me TV where she reports on the news. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of weird things that happen uh, in it. And is it? I think I think it's going to be about 120 pages of of just weird shit. <laughs> yeah. Surrealist. Uh, yeah, very surreal. Is it on Bad uh, Betty also? It's also been published by Bad Betty as well. Nice. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Tom Bland. For more, follow his writing at spontaneouspoetics.co.uk and follow him at Twitter. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. 
You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. Androgyny. 